When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Access Manchester. The Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Hello, I'm Jim, and this is the Excess Long Player Classic Album Conversations with the People Who Made Those Albums. On this episode, we're going to be discussing the debut album from one of the most important music makers, in my opinion, of the last couple of decades Badly Drawn Boy, Hour of the Bewilder Beast. This was, when it came out, a genre-busting album that came right off the back of the Britpop era and did something musically that a lot of the indie lads and lasses hadn't heard until this point. It was first published in the year 2000, which means it's just celebrated its 20th anniversary, which makes me feel really old, and was instantly recognised at the time of its release for being the great piece of work it was. It went on to win the 2000 Mercury Music Prize, which we talk about with Damon on today's show but thankfully wasn't one of the artists and albums that went on to experience the curse of the Mercury Music Prize. If it's been a while since you've listened to The Hour of Bewilderbeast and you need to remind yourself of how the album flows and the intermissions and all that kind of thing, I've stuck a link to listen to the album in the podcast description. Go and have a listen to that either before you continue or maybe right at the end because hopefully this conversation will inspire you to go and rediscover that brilliant album. So let's get stuck into it. Hour of the Bewilderbeast with the boy himself, Damon Goff. This is the Excess Manchester Long Player. How are you doing, Damon? Hi, Jim. I'm fine, thank you. Good. 21 years we're going back for this one. Does it yeah. feel that long? Oh, yeah. Easily. <laughs> <laughs> As we all know, time's a weird thing, especially in the last year. We've all experienced how time can play tricks on you. And it, it, it depends on what your reference points are. But for me, the first album feels like so much has happened in my life since I did like eight, eight albums in 12 years in the first part of my career really mm. and then I had a big break so one thing and another has made it feel like it's not like it feels I can't say it feels like yesterday then then again parts of it do little bits of it do it depends what your memory tells you does it feel like I mean a lot of people tell me that the music they write it's so connected with where they were at a point in their life when they wrote it that it's almost like a diary entry so when you look at the music from Hour of the Border Beast is it kind of like looking back at a reflection of yourself at that stage yeah I think inevitably is that particularly with that first album, it was it was my first attempt at making a, a full album and after the first EPs that I'd made at the time. And it was, I wanted to do something with a bit of weight to it that, to put myself on the map really, because I, I felt like the EPs I'd done were, were just me kind of dabbling and mm. trying things out. So I wanted to make a statement. All I had to draw from was, was my life up to that point. And I wasn't aware of it, but it, that the album took on a, 
kind of a, a mirror of the relationship at the time of me. I'd just met Claire and she was the, the mother of my two children. We're not together now. We, we broke up sort of 10 years ago. We're still kind of close because the kids are a part of us. But um, the album just turned into a song cycle about my struggles up to that point in life of, of trying to make sense of the world and relationships and myself. I mean, the, the title itself, Bewildered Beast, was a reference to me being constantly unsure of, of where I fit into the world, I, I suppose. So it's, I, th- I think that the, the honesty that's in the album is probably what has given it its its longevity and those those kinds of emotions that mm. are always going to be relevant. I, I, I have a different set of emotions now, perhaps 20, 20 years later. I'm a, a 20 year older version of, of myself and things I've learned learned and unlearned so it's definitely a moment in time that album that, that when I when I listen to it it does take me back to a kind of an innocent time uh, for, for me personally and, and that this the great thing about music as we all know it you, you hear a song and it just transports you immediately to a, to a point where you heard it or, or what was going on in your life at that time. It's interesting you mentioned the honesty of the album because I was watching an interview you did and I, I think it was about 2000 when the album first came out, which incidentally is the only time I think I've ever seen you without a hat. Um, and you said in it that you didn't think you were a very good singer, but you were honest with your singing. And that gave the album something a bit special. When you listen back to the album now, do you still feel self-conscious about your voice and your singing? I feel self-conscious about my voice now. I mean, the, the next record I make, I've got to f- refine my voice. I mean, the confidence that I need to, to perform any songs. There's certain songs on Bewilderbeast that uh, I listen to and think, oh, I could have sung that better. But And I do sing better now. When I, when I perform the songs live, I, I've, I think my voice has, has matured. It's not changed dramatically, but it's matured a little bit. And my technique's probably improved over the years because I've done so many gigs. But certain songs on the Bewilderbeast, I kind of nailed it. But I remember a song like Once Around the Block, for example, I remember thinking that song was finished. And then it was one of the few songs where A&R stepped in, Nick, Nick Worthington, who was a really great A&R guy at XL, he just said, I th- one of the few occasions where he said, I, th- I think you could sing this better. I think I think he knew how good the song was. And he was right to call it because I think I remember listening to a previous take that I'd settled on being the final one and, and it was nowhere near good enough, really. Things like that come with experience. It's like I police myself these days when I do some vocals. I, I, I'm pretty hard on myself to get it right. And, and even then you don't get it right with reflection a few years down the line you still think you could do things better and I, I met like the song Spitting in the Wind I'll use that title that version of the title uh, <laughs> rather than I remember that song in particular that the vocal on that and a friend of mine said to me years down the line after the album had been out five maybe ten years I can't remember and I said oh that song it always kind of embarrasses me the vocal take and 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 they said, well, no, that's that's the evolution of an artist, though, that's quite precious. And I, I thought, well, I, I'll take I'll take that as a positive because the, the person I was talking to was was an artist, a, a painter. And and they, and they said that that's part of an artist's evolution is, is to accept those flaws in earlier works. And mm. you've progressed through your latest. It's part of the journey, really. At the time, I remember hearing the album for the first time. One of the things that drew me to it was the almost unaffected honesty of the vocals and, and the whole album just felt like something very different to what had come before did it feel like that at the time did it feel like you were making something that was unique that didn't reflect kind of the previous 10 years of music so it was coming off the back of like Britpop and whatnot yeah well I mean being in Manchester in, in the mid 90s with, with, with everything that was kicking off with obviously Oasis were just dominating the world and that was exciting for Manchester as a place to, to be in. And, but I'd, I'd always felt that connection to Manchester with earlier bands 
in my life, the Smiths and the, the Fall, the, the Manchester scene and Joy Division, New Order, there was always something in the air. And I already felt different being a solo artist. So when I was doing these strange gigs that I was, and I was heavily criticised at the time for being pretty rubbish, but I kind of thrived on that. I thought, well, I'm, I'm not trying to represent this this thing that, that Manchester is associated with. I'm trying to be another kind of arm of it, another another facet of what Manchester has to, has to offer. I'm, so I, I immediately stood out. To some people, I wasn't a good thing. And to others, I was the greatest thing because it was different. That helped initially get me noticed, I suppose, looking back. But I suppose just the singer-songwriter thing generally wasn't, wasn't that represented in Manchester at the time. And with Twisted Nerve and other bands that we had, it became like an acoustic movement, the new, the new acoustic movement, which, which I kind of didn't really feel that we'd, we'd instigated anything new or fresh in that department. It was, it was just guitars still. But I suppose the whole madeness of Twisted Nerve and me, that, that, that was an aspect of it, that there was... There was something raw and honest about that. And that, that tied in with my my love of lo-fi in the early 90s with, with artists like Beck and Pavement and Sebado, Guided by Voices, bands that, a lot of American indie bands that I really loved at that point. And so indie homemadeness made sense to me as an aesthetic. So yeah, but again, all these things are like, they're just happening without you knowing. And, and you either capture a zeitgeist or you don't. And every time you do something, you want, you want to be, you want to feel like you're at the cutting edge of something important. And you have to ignore it all to do your, to get on with your next work. You have to kind of ignore and absorb at the same time. I mean, I, I guess part of the fact it was so new might have caught you off guard that it was also so successful. It won the Mercury Music Prize, had phenomenal success in terms of sales as well. And I remember seeing on Top of the Pops at the time a couple of times too. You, you always struck me as someone who loves music but isn't necessarily that bothered about all the bells and whistles that come with the fame side of things so how do you cope with that being shoved straight into the limelight it's a really difficult tightrope to walk the fame game and claiming that you don't like it that fame isn't fame isn't for you but you're still there you know as a byproduct of being a musician that gets a certain amount of success like with me like you said the mercury prize and playing live and being on tv shows you inevitably look like a hypocrite if you say you don't like it and I, I never i never really understood those people that would turn up to award ceremonies especially like the nme awards and pretend like they don't want to be there but they still walk up and get their award and walk away with it like well <laughs> so if you're going to turn up don't slag off the very thing you you're there for you know you're getting an award it's, it's a bit it's a strange balance to strike i don't naturally enjoy certain aspects of fame it's the, and, I, and i haven't really courted it because if you do you're going to look silly I accept the amount of fame that comes with it because some of it is positive and gives you a platform to help in some ways, which I have done as much as I can helping different organisations and charities over the years because I've got a voice and a platform. Mm. And so that's, so that's, there's some good with it, but you know, I couldn't be the kind of person that's on TV every day. There's a certain thing in human nature to, to want to be noticed and to also preserve your privacy. And that we're kind of all going through that now with social media and, and the way the world operates these days. It's, it's gone to other levels, but um, I kind of just toyed with it and, and got the most out of it as I, as I could in those days. And I suppose the other the other cliche as well is that, like I became a heavy drinker throughout those years of, of touring because there was nothing else to do when you're feeling like eight, ten hours a day before you go on stage and, and you're on, the, on a tour bus driving through the night in America or Europe or Japan and, and I just became a habitual drinker. So that was a, that was one of the downsides, but it, but it got me through. You know, it was one of those things that got me through. And I, I gave up the booze five years ago, but 
so now I, everything I do when I do a gig or I'm making an album, I, I'm doing it from a, another new perspective, which is sober. So we could talk about that forever. We're going to have to edit most of this out. It's not really relevant. <laughs> Interesting, though. Let's shift back to the music. Mm. And on the album, there's a couple of tracks on there. A kind of mini tracks. There's Bewilder, Body Rap. This song is probably on the short side as well. Was there something specific you were trying to achieve by adding in those tunes? Because I think Bewilder is probably one of my favourite tracks on the album. I just I, I just love the simplicity of it and the fact that there's mini 40 seconds or something like that, isn't it? They're almost like intermissions, I guess. I want, was, was there something you were trying to achieve by putting these tracks in there? I had the attitude of it, like, this This is my big moment to, to make a big statement with a, with a record. And I had so many ideas to try and fit into the one album, but I'd worked with so many different producers as well on different songs that there came a point where I felt, I don't, I don't know if this is all working together. There's quite a few different styles going on, which is what I wanted. I wanted it to be. I, I worked with different producers for that reason, to get different results out of different songs. And I didn't, I didn't want it to sound like the same musician that was making all these songs. So part of me wanted to do that, but then I thought, does this hold together? So a lot of the little interlude moments were, some of them were afterthoughts and segues to kind of tie one track to another. Bewilder was, Supposedly, I'm just playing it on the harmonium a version of the title track. I mean, the title track itself, it, Bewilder Beast, is a, an instrumental, which is a strange thing to choose to do. But I said in a quote last year that I, th- I think I perhaps part of me wanted a song that was a title track that had no words because the music was more powerful. There was a notion of that going on. And the little hint of Bewilder that you mentioned was just to say this, this is coming up later on. This is a little taste of it. I, don't, I, was, I was just playing around with like a sound collage as well. I mean, like fast forwarding to my, to my recent album, I didn't do any of that. And I really kind of wish I had, because I think it would have ended up stronger if I had, but I, right. I didn't want to go there again. I, I felt like I'd done that. I'm, I'm just never really satisfied. Once I've lived with the songs for so long, like you do for two years when you're making an album or however long it takes, to and fro in with making songs, I just couldn't hear anymore. You, you, you listen mm. to them and dissected them that many times in the studio that, that I, I always want to add something extra when it comes to finishing just before you're going to master a record if I can add a few little bits in there that surprise me even so maybe there's a bit of that going on as well with some of those small ideas when was the last time you listened to it when was the last time you sat down and put Bewilderbeast on the last time I listened to it through was Tim's Twitter listening party last year in June I don't think I haven't listened to it since then I haven't I haven't listened to my new album more than twice this is again another weird admission to make since since giving up the booze five years ago I I struggle to listen to my own music. I, I just get it done and that's it. Um, I used to sit and listen to mixes in my headphones at night and with a, with a glass of wine or Jack and Coke or whatever. And that's the other thing about the booze that I, I kind of miss is that I haven't got the staying power to be in the studio listening to mixes for hours on end. The booze allowed that to be much more tolerable and things have changed for me. So I, listening to the music at the levels I used to, I, I I can't do it anymore. Maybe that'll change again. I mean, I'm in a phase now. The next album I make, I'm 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 kind of excited about what I, what I can do. I've got some really strong ideas, and but yeah, I, I don't tend to sit and dwell and listen to my. I don't I don't listen to tons of music anyway. I, I I just I just dip in and out and hear songs when I hear them, and then check an artist out for a minute. And I'm always if if I hear music that I like, I, I tend to want to just sit at my piano or pick up my guitar. Same if I see a film that's inspiring, I, I'll immediately be thinking of musical ideas I get distracted so easily I can't I can't read a book without stopping and picking up my guitar so the same with music if I listen to something that I like it tends to make me want to pick up an instrument and and, and come up with something 
where do the influences come from on on this album then was it art literature poetry film or was it a mishmash of them all mainly real real life just basic experiences of, of struggling to find purpose and struggling to find your slot where you fit in what 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 you're good at relationships were always a struggle for me I was never really holding a relationship down for, well that, that said I had long relationships that, that ended even, even when I was 18 I was with somebody for two years and then someone for three or four years in my 20s and it was never quite what I expected it to be and so there was there was the real life stuff that I experienced and a lot of, a lot of films I suppose in my early 20s I, I went to the cinema a lot and so film film and music but I suppose for me, it's, it's it's always some kind of ethereal, mystical mm. notion that I get from these things. It's not as an artist, I, I very much everything is about feeling how how something feels, how something makes you feel. And so when I write a song, I, it's all about how it feels rather than the technicality of it. Or the I'm not a technically gifted guitarist or pianist. I'm not a technically gifted singer. But the the combination can can of the ideas can clash and and make something quite beautiful if you if if you just capture it and I, I just thrive on moment moments really and and guesswork and instinct and, and try not to overthink stuff too much which is impossible for me for, for people like me who aren't musicians it's a really difficult thing to get your head around the idea that you can understand how something in someone's life in reality could influence say lyrics for example but in terms of something that happens in someone's life influencing or creating this feeling of music is something that's very difficult for a non-musician to get their head around I think it's hard for me to get my head around because I sometimes <laughs> it really is because there was a point in my life where I wasn't a musician because I always maintain that everybody's got a song in them at least one great song I, I, and I, I can vouch for that being true because if I'd gone down another path for example at the age of 18 and, and got a different job other than in a recording studio which I did if I'd, if I'd gone down another path a more academic route I would never have known I could write a song because it, it, might not, it might not have entered my life and when I first tried to play guitar I thought no nah, I gave up several times I thought this just it's just too hard I, I can't stand there with this thing in my hand and make sense of it and now 20 years later I'm, I feel as comfortable with a guitar as I do with a, a spoon in my hand eating my breakfast cereal you know it's it, it's an extension of me I, I play it and, and that was perseverance and but the thing about the thing about coming up with ideas is still a mystery even even with the the amount of knowledge I have of of, a, of playing my guitar on my, pia- my piano, I still don't quite get how how a song comes to be. Yesterday or the day before, I wrote, I wrote a song and it, and it came from nothing. I, I just sat and played and, and something clicked and it felt right and I and I remembered it and I recorded it and it's and they just they just come randomly these songs. But I I don't really buy into the thing that a lot of people say that these things are coming from somewhere else. I I definitely work at these things. That these ideas come out of my head. They're not God-given. I don't believe in that. I, I, I think that's the narrative that everyone just, has just bought into. Over, the, over, Yeah, yeah. there's an essence of truth in being in the moment and feeling good. Ideas happen when you're in the right mood, for example, but I don't think they descend from somewhere else. That, that takes away some of the credit for you working on it, if, if, you, if you accept that notion. What's your favourite track on the album? Looking back at it 21 years down the line, is there one that stands out for you? Or is it like picking a favourite child? <laughs> I suppose there's something with the first album. There's there's a few songs that that are just like the opening track, The Shining, is like so many people love that intro, and I was I was so pleased I went with that idea of the, the way the, the way the album begins with the French horn and the cello. That that was kind of an afterthought, like an edit. 
where I lifted those elements from the song and put them at the beginning to, to create an intro. And so that, that song's always going to be special because it's like the first, it's the beginning of something. Even though I've done the EPs before, this was the, the first album and it was the beginning of my career in a way. That song represents that. So that's always going to be a special one. And Once Around the Block is, it's, I don't know if that song's ever going to be superseded by any, any others. I mean, I feel like I've written songs as strong as that. But there's something about everything went right. And the away team that re, that produced that song, Andy and Ian, in Courtyard Studios in Oxford, where Radiohead at their headquarters, they never get really enough mention. I, I, their input was very big on that song, and it was one. It was a moment when I recorded that. I felt like, yes, this is this is who I want to be. This this song represents everything I'm trying to be, become as an artist. So that was a landmark tune, and still is, and it, and it changes over time when I play it live. Songs like Disillusion, the ones that were singles, and another Pearl and Epitaph at the end of the album is is like just a beautiful closing track. So it's what I think what. I'm most proud of when I'm going going through the songs now as you in my head I'm trying to pick them out. Uh, it, it's like the journey the journey that the album takes. It's quite long as most albums go, exactly an hour. Hence the title, Hour of Bewilderment. But it, the journey it takes you on is something I'm most proud of because that's quite hard to do. It's it's almost cinematic to do it without visuals. It's kind of you would say easier to create a journey when you've got like a film to watch, but to do it with just audio is another kind of skill, I suppose that. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll never match that kind of thing again on an album. Great album. Been an honour to play it on Excess Manchester. Uh, Damon, thank you very much for joining us to talk us through it. And we look forward to hearing what comes next soon. Oh, brilliant. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jim. I really appreciate you having me. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Thank you very much for listening to The Excess Long Player classic album conversations with the people who helped make those albums. There's a load more to go at in this series, so make sure you listen to the other episodes. Talking Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches, Happy Mondays, Cortina, St Jude, Mosley Shoals, Ocean Colour Scene, Hour of the Wildebeest, Damon Goff and Kaiser Chiefs Employment. That's season one. Season two is coming soon. And if you want to get a notification as soon as that podcast series is up, click follow now and we'll send you a note as soon as season two is available. Plus, if you know someone who would love this podcast, maybe we've covered one of their favourite albums, make sure you tell your mates about it. And if you want me to do a specific album with a specific person, then why not get in touch? You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Jim Bob. But I'll see you next time for the next Excess Long Player. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Access Manchester.